papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. Or I meet politicians. The Media Project offers you a half hour of commentary and analysis on news media issues of the week, and we are very grateful to have you with us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Here with this week, Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, of course. Ira Fussfeld, the longtime publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston, New York, and affiliated publications. And investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, a journalist and professor of so we have a lot of topics to talk about. These are big days in journalism. Dr. Shartok, uh, Dr. Shartok, sir, are you, are you there? Are you there? I am. I am, said Popeye. <laughs> I am, I am. <laughs> All right. Tell us the significance for America, because you have a Ph.D. and therefore have some significant scope, let's say. The world is changing in our media ecosystem. Fox News suffering this rating slump, the post-Trump future. Uh, you know, there are points now at which Fox News is the number three network, CNN number one. Is this going to make any difference? It makes a huge difference to me personally because, you know, I found Trump to be the most reprehensible president we have ever had in this country and a great danger who wanted to bring the United States into a fascistic totalitarian mode. And so it means a great deal. And I kept wondering, how can all these people be following this guy? Well, it is interesting because you raise a fascinating point, Rex. It apparently is that people choose their media to some degree based on who's in power. So while Trump was the president of the United States, Fox is up there, number one, number two, whatever's going on. But Trump gets out of there. We get a new Democratic president. And all of a sudden, the media focus, who people are listening to or watching or reading, begins to change. Now, I find that really fascinating. I wonder how Rosemary feels. I do, too. Well, I just finished reading a very interesting report on this done by the Pointer Institute, the journalism think tank, and they're saying, dream on. This is a temporary thing. It happened when Obama came into office, too. Fox's ratings fell. Did not stay low for long, but they did fall. And a whole lot of it this time may be, again, because of the Trump influence, his supporters are depressed. And so they're not listening to any news at all. And that's part of the reason that there's a slump right now. They do not expect it to last. Fox is also coming into some competition from, of all things, the right. They're being out crazy by Newsmax and ONA. However, the point of people point out that as soon as the Trump stuff goes away, and it's beginning to, they'll continue a little while during impeachment, but they don't have these new organizations, do not have the new structure and people that Fox does. So eventually they see them all going back to Fox and we're going to be right where we are. I agree with Rosemary 100 percent. I was going to say it before she did it. She was summoned by the great Allen. So that's exactly correct. The history of Fox is that when they're the quote unquote opposition broadcaster, such as in the Obama days, they get their sea legs and their viewers come back because their viewers want to hear the spin that Fox is going to put on it, the negative spin more likely. So I, I suspect that this is a temporary lull for Fox. The only wild card, as Rosemary points out, is is the new competition from the right and how much, if at all, that will drag Fox's numbers. The great Alan here, as Ira would say. So, Ira, this is, to me, a very negative way of looking at this. Uh, you, what you don't want to do is bet against yourself. 
And to me, the idea that Fox is losing ground, that a president who now is in the mid-50s in terms of his approval rating, as opposed to the ex-president who never had got past 50 or even close to it, tells us a lot about why people are choosing a different kind of media. No, I think that, you know, it's always easy to say, oh, it'll all change back to the old way. I don't think so. So here's what I'm just wondering is whether the Fox rating trends that we're talking about here, the preference that viewers of Fox seem to have is for talk, sinister talk over straightforward news. Is that going to be what people want? Are we ever going to have, you know, even the right wing audience that we know that Fox if they're going to be able to find an audience that cares about news, or if this direction in the programming they're taking all for analysis is going to be the way that they go and what that says and, and if that has any impact. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't, but it just seems to Well, you to can see that- a hint of that the other night as we speak when they had the ceremony in the Capitol for the uh, slain police officer and his remains were brought to the Capitol. And MSNBC and CNN carried that entire service live and I flipped over to Fox, and Hannity was on doing his normal Hannity show. And so Fox has obviously made a decision that their viewers and perhaps their bottom line needed Hannity to be on, and that the service in the Capitol was perhaps something, although it should be important to all Americans, that their viewers are not as interested in seeing. So I, the, the short answer is they're going to do their thing, and it's probably going to be continue to be dominated by opinion. The exclusion of several of their news people in favor of more commentators has shown they've made that decision, Ira, and they definitely are with the opinion makers, the Hannity's and the commentators, rather than straight news. That's not their bread and butter, for sure. Well, there's one more thing, and that is, uh, Rosemary, and I agree with you, but I also think that they are worried that the slain officer's basically testimonial was a Democratic thing. It was going to help the Democrats. It was going to help the liberals. So they cut away from it. So what is the narrative that will drive that audience? You know, you think of Fox narratives, say Benghazi. That was the Fox and the Republican right. Obamagate, I can hardly remember what that was. It's more like a campaign, like a political campaign. You have to wonder, what is the next narrative? What can it be? I, I just don't know that Hunter Biden has enough viability as a storyline for there to be something that can propel the Fox audience to grow again. Well, the initial storyline is that Biden is not a uniter, despite what he said he was going to be. And they're they're using all sorts of examples, such as the executive orders, such as the COVID relief package that he might push through without Republican support. Now, what's, of course, not mentioned was how Mitch McConnell was hardly a uniter the last four years. But that, I believe, is the initial narrative that you'll hear over and over. And we'll see it more depending on what happens with the QAnon person. Rosemary, you were saying? Well, I think you're right. That That's what they've started on, and there's a whole bunch of potential themes coming up. You've got Marjorie Green. She's going to be just their little heroine. You know that. And um, you have the COVID relief, which is huge, and you also have an immigration package that Biden has a proposal that he has sent into Congress. That's going to be or has the potential to be hugely divisive. And we know what side Fox will be on on that. And you mean, Rosemary, that the green woman with the insanity that she's pushing will be appreciated by people like Fox? She went into a meeting of fellow Republicans and got a standing ovation. Need I say more? And let's also not forget impeachment. We're going to have Trump himself on trial. 
and that will be just gold, I think, for the Trump-loving Fox people. I think she's just too much for people, and I think the news media is going to reflect that. I only say the news media is going to reflect that because this is the media project. <laughs> well, in any case, these are tumultuous days in the media landscape. I mean, changes, big changes are happening. Maybe it's because of the election cycle, but there are just certain uh, individuals. Uh, you know, the, the president of ABC News is leaving. Tom Brokaw's retired. Marty Barron is retiring from the Washington Post. Before too long, the uh, editor of, of the New York Times, Dean Baquet, is going to leave. Huff Post needs a new editor. LA Times is looking for an editor. So there are a lot of changes in the top all across the media landscape, Zucker at CNN. So if you think that in organizations, leaders make a difference, then there may well be some significant changes in the media to come as a result of all these leadership changes coming. We'll see. One other topic that is really hot, of course, these days is what to do about the social media platforms. And we like to get into this uh, often on this show because now, of course, there's a federal antitrust suit pending against Google and Facebook that was brought at the end of the Trump presidency, and it is still pending an effort to sort of level the playing field. But the question is whether anything will change with big tech as a result of the concerns about how big tech has had such an impact on our culture, how it has affected everything, including the uh, onslaught at the White House. And whether, in fact, there is going to be any change even in Section 230, which protects tech platforms from liability, and whether there ought to be. Ira, I don't know that we've heard your take on Section 230 and whether you think that we ought to reduce the independence that these major tech platforms have. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that the Section 230 provisions that, in effect, make the tech companies publishers. Right now, they're not considered publishers. They're considered platforms. And I think that given the importance of what is transforming on their sites and a lot of the misinformation that's going through their sites, it's important that they become publishers. And now that's a difficult issue for them because it means they're going to have to put people on and they're going to have to review material before it appears rather than after it appears. But that's their problem. They're making a lot of money, and I think that the more control, at the very least, they should follow the same rules that those of us who are considered publishers have to follow. You know, the difficulty is that newspapers, for example, have brought audiences with them into the digital space. You know, there's now record-breaking digital circulation for newspapers across the country, and yet digital advertising revenues have not kept pace because all that digital money is going to the tech giants. And it's a question of fairness. Should they be forced to share some of that money with smaller publishers? Or maybe that's sort of an un-American concept, that if you're big enough to grow and you have an idea that enables you to make money, maybe you should keep it. You could see how the argument could go either way. And the right has recently started to attack big tech for not being kind enough to conservatives, but you might think there could be a conservative argument against it, against intruding on the free marketplace. You know, Rexy, you've been saying from the very beginning, big tech should be giving money to people like your newspaper and others. That's not right. You know, when your time is up, your time is up. You know, that's to say 
The winners are now the big tech companies. They're doing extremely well. And you know why they're doing well? Because a lot of people are using them. And people aren't going to want to see newspapers, which are not doing as well as they used to, uh, clamoring to be getting some of what the, uh, some of these companies are making. I think there's sort of a, I don't know what the proper thing is, dog in the manger or something, argument on your part. But they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for payment for the material that is proprietary to us. We generated a lot of the material, and they're using it. Well, okay, use it. Give us some money for it. Yeah, that's the problem with you, Ira, and with Rex, too. You guys are the losers in this thing. Now, you, of course, are not an editor anymore, but I assume you have some kind of pension or something coming. But let's face it, you've lost. Alan is being provocative, but really? there's an argument here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Alan, Alan is trying to provoke us, but what he's losing sight of is that it isn't just newspapers that are hurt by what's happening on Big Tech. It's us. We are at risk of losing an important constitutional right because of the way they're using our material, misusing our material. Government is ever eager to regulate media, and we will be lumped in. All media will be lumped in together. And if there's government regulation, I think we all lose. We're talking about restraints on social media. I can't be opposed to it until I look at who's espousing it. And these are all the worst conservatives, the most scary people in politics to me. They're the ones saying, yeah, yeah, this would be a good thing. Doesn't that give you pause, Alan? I didn't hear the last sentence. Can you do it again? I think that what Rosemary is saying has some some validity, actually, to one of the questions, and that is the notion that some of these problems could be solved. Well, it's a, it's a different issue, actually. It's the subject of disinformation, hate speech, harassment, that you see a lot of that on social media. The question would be, what if Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what if they couldn't post anonymous content? What if users had to sign up using their real names? There was an op-ed in the Wall Street mm. Journal that advocated that, saying that that's a better idea than trying to deal with Section 230, that section that gives digital platforms protection from liability. But one way or another, that is a crackdown on these social media platforms. So I think that's what Rosemary's talking about. There are people who say the anonymity is the problem, and that might be something that ought to be stemmed, that somehow the government ought to step in and say, you, you don't have protection for such anonymous content. I think that's what she was asking you, Alan. You know, Rex, I know that you and I and Ira and Rosemary all get letters that are unsigned. And I always write back and say, when you have the courage and you stop being a coward, a cowardly, cowardly, cowardly coward, well, maybe I'll answer you <laughs> because that's really what it's about. And, you know, cowards who were hiding behind other things and other people, they are the worst miscreants in the world as far as I'm concerned. I doubt very much you're going to make them come out of the shadows. Well, most print publications require name. And online, at the very beginning of the online boom, newspapers that required names in print were not requiring names mm -hmm. online. I believe that that has largely changed. But the big tech companies, and well, there are so many places you can find online mm -hmm. material, but there are many places that are using it will allow anonymity. Here, here's a question for you, though. If they pass a law tomorrow saying that everybody has to sign, how would we know that they sign with their real name? Wouldn't it be easy to escape that provision? Well, you know what the New York Times did. I don't know if they're still doing it. You wrote a letter to the paper. They called you up to establish that you were who you said you were. 
Yeah, Wait, so you get a phone call and say, are you Jimmy Smith? Oh, yeah, I'm Jimmy Smith. Well, maybe John I'm, Smith. Well, come on now, Ira. Obviously, there's always the potential for misdeeds like that. Nevertheless, at least the Times tried, and I think they really made a difference by doing that. Most papers, including yours, right? The old Kingston Freeman hardly called every single person who wrote a letter up, did they? No, but we called many the ones that we were suspicious of. Uh, no, we call all of them. The Times Union calls every letter before it's published uh, to verify. Well, that's that's, good. Not, that, that's not unusual, but it's not required by law. So the the question now, and I mean, I appreciate the fact that you throw away letters you get. I mean, I have two reactions to that. First, news reporters often get useful tips anonymously. You don't publish something that you don't know its origin, but it's not unusual to get something valuable that comes over the transom without a name on it. Second, it's different for you to throw away something that's anonymous versus the government saying you can't publish something that's anonymous. You can't put something on the air, for example. If the government said, WAMC, you can't use anything on your airwaves without knowing exactly who that person is, that would affect some of your programming, right? Well, I think it would affect a lot of your news that comes from, come on, anonymous sourcing about military, about budget, about uh, national security. That is all coming from and always has always come from anonymous sourcing. That is all endangered once you get the government in. Absolutely. And we don't want the government in. So you guys putting those words in my mouth. Let me put it this way. I resent it terribly. But besides your usual garbage about trying to say I said something I didn't say, I want to make it clear that what I was saying is that when I personally get a letter and it is unsigned, I write back and say, I'll answer you when you sign your name. I have a right to do that, and it has nothing to do with all the things you guys just raised. And by the way, I do, have a, I do have a file. It's a PIA file. I'm not going to tell you what PIA stands for, but I am going to tell you that every letter that I get, <laughs> I don't throw any letters away. <laughs> I put them down in the PIA file. Now, the other day, a woman wrote to me, and I looked her up, and it was her 15th negative letter. So I put it in the PIA file, and now there are 16. Well, the, the fact is, too, that anyone who's spent time on Facebook knows that people are happy to say terrible things even while using their real names. And, and besides, I think probably the idea is unconstitutional. I can't imagine that the First Amendment wouldn't protect uh, – you know, you need to protect unpopular speech. And that's one of the key reasons why you need to protect anonymity. And as Rosemary says, an awful lot of important information has come from anonymous sources. Bob Woodward knew who Deep Throat was during Watergate, but of course the readers of the Washington Post didn't know who his sources were. But, you know, I've certainly over the years gotten some important tips that have come through Material that is typed, unsigned, and just stuffed into an envelope without a return address. Very interesting. You have to confirm it. Good journalism doesn't, of course, just go forward with that, and that's the difference between real journalism and these digital platforms. But I still don't think that you can legislate that in the real world. I think we all agree. We can handle this stuff personally, but the government has no role in saying who can talk and who can and who can be published. Right. Well, I know that we're confusing sources and commenters and who can be anonymous. But once again, I I will repeat, when government gets involved, when they're trying to regulate and stop speech, they will confuse this. And that's why I do have pause about it. 
even though, like Ira, I think I see some value in having the social media act like publishers. There's just too much speech getting on now that's absolutely dangerous. It's been implicated in not just protest, but in genocide in the case of the Rohingya in, in Burma. And we have to do something about this, but I want it done without hurting constitutional rights. And that's the rub right there. I heard a phrase that I'd not heard before by, I think it was an FBI, former FBI person in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, and they're doing research to get to the bottom of who the people were. And one of the phrases that he used was keyboard bravado. In other words, they're looking up social media to see who has written negative material, but the people who have keyboard bravado are just taking advantage of the anonymity, and they really have no desire to get involved physically or otherwise. They just want to spout off and hide behind the anonymity. That's a great saying. Keyboard bravado. I'm going to use it myself, and you can write to me and say that I use your term. Okay. Give me what Google would have given me. Nothing. And give him some resources. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Give him whatever dollars you might get from it. A share of your vast profits on that, Alan, I'm sure. Uh, Vast profits on public radio. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, one of the topics that some of the media scholars are putting forward is the notion that there might be some compromise position, this question of taking away the protection that the digital platforms are provided. Maybe there could be, rather than aggressive over-moderation or none at all, but maybe what you need is condition the Section 230 protection, the protection against lawsuits for these digital platforms on a reasonable content moderation practices. Maybe there's a way to draft a statute with rather nebulous sensibility, but something that says that you have protection if there is a reasonable effort. In the same way, for example, that courts have held that you are protected from libel if you don't demonstrate malice in advance or reckless disregard of the truth. Maybe a standard of that sort could be applied to protect the liability of these platforms. It's difficult, it's not hard and fast, but the libel protection works fairly well, actually, even though it's somewhat nebulous like that. You think there might be some possibility that that could work? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The short short answer is yes. How would it be presented? I mean, right now we're in an atmosphere, Rex, where government is going after big tech. And they have a lot of standing, both from the antitrust point of view and from what they've done as violators of our freedom of speech. So how do we get to the point where we're reconciling it? It's going to be a dance. It's going to be a dance. All right. Here's a question, folks. What is a journalist? And it has some relevance in particular real-life circumstances. The gang that attacked the Capitol on January 6th included a lot of people taking video, live streaming. The question is, who are these people? And I think there are going to be a lot of folks who are going to be defending their behavior there. We may see this in the courts by saying, I was, in fact, a documentarian. I was showing people what's going on there. This seems to me to be a difficult issue for us, and I don't know how you're going to be able to define what is a player and what is a journalist. I have no clear answers to this. Any smart heads Well, if there was an accident in front of the WAMC building on Central Avenue and a passerby took a picture, a still picture of it, and sent it into the Times Union, you might buy that or use it for free depending on what your policy is. But was the person who took that picture a journalist or a bystander? 
I think that the same qualifications would extend to the new media. But does that then give any particular protection, the First Amendment protection for speech? For well, that's absorbed the by the publisher. Under, under the old rules, the print rules, the publisher is responsible for everything that he or she prints. Again, we go circle back to the platforms not being responsible because all they are are platforms that push these things along, and they take no responsibility for the content. You know, ever since this program has begun, we've been talking about who's a journalist and who's not. Is an opinion person a journalist? I say if they're in a journal, they're a journalist. If they're on the air, they're a journalist. There are always those who would say, no, 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 you're not really a journalist because you offer an opinion. Well, the opinion people are in those journals. They deserve respect. And therefore, my sense of it is that this gets to be a silly argument after a while. Well, not so silly if you're being a journalist keeps you from the charges that they're now contemplating against the attackers Absolutely. of the Capitol. And that's what it is. Yeah, it, it has happened before. There is some case law about this. And the test usually applied is, okay, tell me if you're a journalist, where have you published or broadcast before? Where's your body of work? Do you have credentials? And show me some work that you've had, even if it's constantly, even on Facebook, I would say, okay, I'll take that. You're doing journalism, reporting on events, and then broadcasting it is journalism. So it, it's a loose definition, but it isn't the same thing as the guy who runs out and takes a picture of a bloody accident outside the station. Well, I don't know. You know, uh, Rosemary, uh, suppose somebody decides, just to give you a hard time, suppose somebody decides, you know, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm starting today. And on that day, the next day, they're hauled into court and they say, you're not really a journalist because, like Rosemary says, you haven't been at it long enough. How's that for provoking? Yeah, I think that person would have a hard time in court saying, yeah, this was the day I decided. Well, did you tell anybody you decided? Is it written down? Show me the letters where you were applying for, if not a job, someone to use your material. You know, of course, this is all legal. But it just seems to me that it's they're using their identity, supposed identity as a journalist, simply to get out of a great deal of legal trouble, which I would like them to be in. You know, you guys form into circles, your self-protective circles. We know that. I remember a guy from a newspaper. I wouldn't even describe it as a newspaper. It was horrible. Who used to say, Shatak, Shatak is on the radio. That's not a journalist. There's always somebody to raise this kind of thing. <laughs> well, as long as you're not attacking the Capitol, Alan, I think you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, and I think that those of us who have been in the business a long time are rightly protective of it. We've gone to school, we've got decades of experience, and we're protective of the phrase journalism. It's something that we earned over time. And yeah, I resent it if somebody comes in and declares himself a journalist without any kind of background. Can you describe him that way today? Well, some might, but I, I'm reluctant. I, I am a chauvinist about this. Uh, you are. Indeed you are. And I have to tell you, you know, we've known each other a long time, Ira, and I have great love and respect for you. But I think you're full of it when it comes to this. The fact of the matter is you guys form into a little protective circle and you say we are the ones who are allowed to make this definition of who's a journalist and who's not. You're just wrong. We Defend me, Rosemary time. and Rex. <laughs> I was, was going to say this, Alan. We yes. are protective, and if you don't behave yourself, we're going to throw you out. That's right. <laughs> now we go. The kangaroo court. <laughs> and we hop off into the distance, folks, as the media project draws to a close yet again. Alan Shartuck, Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Rex Smith, with great gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to thank you also for joining us this week on the Media Project. 
what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free chairs the freedom of the press.